Hey everyone, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a high school philosophy teacher, that's me, and his former student who's currently studying philosophy in college, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purposes of living a good life. Welcome to episode eight. Andrew, have you achieved eudaimonia these past two weeks? You know, it's, I guess it's just a journey, so I'm not there yet. <laughs> Are you flourishing? Uh, <laughs> no. Well, no. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm currently in the, in the middle of the end, I guess. So just finishing things up. I was, I was telling you earlier, I'm finished. I just, just finished my last philosophy paper and I'm starting a new one. <laughs> and those things can be brutal at times. So I, I estimated, I was talking to my mom the other few days ago and I estimated that I spent about 20 hours on this paper, this past paper, and I would say 15 of those hours were just editing alone. So I am not really excited on on revamping. <laughs> what about what about you? Have you uh, have you started on the path, or are you almost there? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Marcus Aurelius says the obstacle becomes the way. So right. <laughs> I guess they're on the path, whether we like it or not. Sure. Yeah. Now things are good. Things are super busy. Uh, it's that time of the year. Um, you know, if you're in the academic world, there's certain predictable cycles and it's nearing the end of the term. So uh, I have been reading a lot of a lot of research papers. <laughs> that's I feel like sometimes it feels like that's all I've been doing, but but that's OK. That's good. Summer is coming, as they say. You've, you've been on those research papers for about a month, haven't you, right? Well, yeah, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, you know, we're going through the, the editing and revision process. Um, so right now I am grading the final draft. And I have, after this podcast we record, I have five left. So that oh will my take goodness. A, yeah. So the end is, the end is, is in sight, uh, which I'm very happy for. But, you know, all is well. Uh, it's a beautiful day outside. And, and perhaps if... Uh, it remains so. I'll I'll finish those finish those essays outside. I might have said that in the previous episode. You did. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do love being outdoors, um, especially this time of year. And for us Houstonians, um, another couple of weeks. Uh, it'll just be, you know, outrageously hot and muggy for five straight months. So enjoy it while you can. All right, guys. So for the main part of our episode this week, wanted to cover a book that has been really significant in my life, or it's one of these types of episodes that I've probably overthought because it's such an important book to me that I want to do a good job uh, in, in, in relaying it to, to the world. But it is a book called Falling Upward, a Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. So it's written by uh, a guy by the name of Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest. You can call him Father Rohr, and he's fine with that. But a lot of times in the interviews I've heard with him, he's like, eh, Richard's fine. But, but he's a Franciscan, uh, and he's a priest in the Catholic Church. He is the founder for the Center, or founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's quite prolific. Uh, his most recent book just came out in 2021. I have not read it yet, but it is in my stack. Uh, it is called Order, Disorder, Reorder, The Wisdom Pattern. But of his books I have read, 
in 2019, The Universal Christ, Immortal Diamond, and Everything Belongs, The Gift of Contemplative Prayer. But the book that I really want to talk about here today is Falling Upward, Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. I've read it three times in the last six years. So here's here's Rohr's basic thesis, right? So we have in our lives two halves, like our lives is split up into two halves. Now I want to say at the outset, this is metaphorical, all right? It's not chronological. When we say the first half of life and the second half of life, that is a particular mentality, a particular way of viewing the world and being in the world. Uh, it's not necessarily from the ages of zero to 50 or whatever. So, so first half of life, second half of life. Uh, there's another author by the name of David Brooks who came out with a book a couple of years ago called The Two Mountains. And that's very similar, right? Like the first mountain is your first half of life. The second mountain is the second half of life. But here's the basic thesis, and, uh, and we'll have Andrew jump in, and, and I'm really curious what he thinks about this. So the first half of life, again, it's not chronological. And you might enter the first half of life at anywhere. There are people, Rohr says that our second half of life people, even, even in their early 20s. But, but the first half of life is what he calls container building. And what you're doing is you're creating order in your life. Like the first half of life, he calls a very necessary ego-driven period uh, as you as a person is building what he calls your life container. So that's like throughout your teenage years and into early adulthood, you're beginning to move out from the bubble that you had grown up in with your family and community. You're moving out to the world. You're beginning to form your own beliefs and ideas. Uh, so you have th these containers he talks about are things such as like identity, you know, who are you as an adult, your career, building your career as you're moving along through your 20s and 30s, you might eventually start a family, you know, working on financial security, and certainly your reputation as you are in your public life, as well as your professional life, and your personal life, in your moral belief structure, all of these things. This is container building. And then at some point, there will be a situation that occurs in your life where all of those types of things that you have built, that you have created, that you believe are so incredibly concretely true, something will occur in your life that will just completely wipe all that stuff away and show you, it'll show you how the things that you believed in life that were so solid are just nothing but illusion. And so the second half of life, after you've gone through this transformational situation, whatever it is, it's usually almost always a tragedy of some kind. The second half of life becomes less about me and more about others. By the second half of life, you, this suffering that you will go through is, is a, it, it reorients your, your outlook on life. And so we'll get much more deeper into like exactly what that is. But as a result of that, as a result of understanding and experiencing the tragic sense of life, you become as a person more compassionate, more accepting, more open-minded. Life is a much more richer, more expansive, uh, encompassing experience because life has shown us uh, how cruel it can be. And so Rohr calls this a really type of hard one wisdom, um, that the second half of life 
sees the beautiful, sees, sees the beauty of life coexisting with the harshness of it. And that makes the beautiful all the more beautiful. So this is the basic thesis. And I am, I don't think I'm in the second half of life, but I think I'm much closer to it than Andrew, at least certainly chronologically speaking. So Andrew, that's the basic thesis. Uh, what, are, what, are your, what are your sort of first reactions to that? I think that it's interesting how he describes how ego plays an important part of building the identity when you're young. I think it's kind of certainly, at least maybe for me, it was unrecognizable for a long time how much my ego influenced my actions and and in what ways I acted, how I acted, what decisions I made, etc. How I wanted my identity to be. And then I don't even know how I even realized that. I think I was reading a book on meditation and it was like, oh, the ego is a thing. It wasn't like going into a psychology class and then learning about, you know, the ego, the super ego. But the ego certainly seems to to drive, you know, who I want to be. Now, something that I was thinking that's kind of interesting is I could be wrong about this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Rourke is saying that in the first half of your life, ego is important, right? It's something that's necessary. Yes, he calls it he calls it necessary container building. Like you can't you, you can't get out of it. Uh, this is part of of the cycle of like the entire arc of the human experience. You know, when you're in your teens and then in certainly your early 20s and even 30s and 40s to some to some degree, you're still building that identity that you can take rest in later in your life that you have confidence in who you are as a person, your moral beliefs and all those kind of things. Right. So I don't know. I'm obviously, well, not obviously, I wouldn't say it, <laughs> but I'm not an expert on many things, right? <laughs> but it seems like in a lot of other traditions, there's an emphasis on just kind of removing the ego entirely. I believe in a lot of Eastern traditions, at least, you know, I took a class on Buddhism last semester, so I'm definitely not an expert just skimming the surface, but I believe that's something that's important in Buddhism removing the ego because it drives you to act, drives you to act in ways that you wouldn't. And then I was reading, I think it's in book four of the Republic, you know, he's saying he wants reason to drive uh, instead of the spirit, which I guess could be something kind of like the ego, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how to translate Plato onto modern psychological thinking. But in Rourke, it seems that there's an emphasis on ego in the first half of your life. But in other traditions, I guess, it seems like you want to eliminate the ego as soon as you can. So I'm kind of, you know, like you said, I'm very young. Obviously, I'm in the first half of my life. So I'm thinking like, if I want to remove my ego, if my ego is bad and it's causing, well, I guess it's not agreed upon that the ego is bad, but I'm thinking, you know, the ego does cause me to act in ways that I perhaps wouldn't later in my life. Why should I, you know, why should I be following it? Like now, you know, uh, if it's causing me to act in ways that I might regret, or even if it is causing me to build this identity, I don't know. I don't know. This is a very long-winded ramble, but uh, it seems like there's some friction upon some traditions, you know, that make it seem like ego can exist and not exist. It's good and it's bad for the, for an individual. Yeah, no, that's an interesting tie-in. And, you know, Roar is very, very ecumenical comes to very pluralistic when it comes to other belief systems. Yeah, certainly Buddhism, Taoism, 
these types of, of Eastern religions warn against the ego and, and, and even with Stoicism to a degree, you know, says the more we can let go of our ego, at least the, the negative parts of our ego, the more, uh, the more at peace we will be. And, you know, I think Rohr's perspective on this is that, that ironic as it sounds, it's important to build the ego so that finally we're able to walk away from it. Mm. Like it's a real irony here. You know, I, you know, he, so one of the, one of the images or, or examples that he references frequently through the book is, is Odysseus and the, and the Odyssey, the great Greek classic. And, and you take Odysseus, right? And he really had everything you would want. You know, he had a kingdom, he had wealth, he uh, had a wife. And, you know, he goes off to fight in the Trojan War. Well, the Trojan War takes 10 years. And then once the Trojan War is over, he sets sail for home. And that takes 10 years. So he's gone for 20 years. And then when he returns, you know, there's all these suitors and they're trying to get his wife to marry them and his you know, his son Telemachus and all this sort of stuff. But after this experience of being gone for 20 years, he comes back a different man than when he left for the Trojan War initially. And so he's much more able to handle the the situation uh, in a way that that comes out as a successful result for him, as opposed to if he were just stuck in the first half of life type thinking. He is humbled by his experiences. And, and through that humiliation, through that suffering and that struggle, he's become a wiser person and can approach these suitors in a clever way, more so than just coming in with a blind rage and trying to slaughter everyone <laughs> and, and, you know, and all this sort of stuff, which is a very egoic sort of notion. Yeah. So, so it is, it is ironic, you know, uh, Roar says, I can't remember where in the book, but, but he makes an allusion to a house, you know, the first half of life is you building this house, this container, uh, and it needs to have strong walls and a strong foundation so that ironically you can leave it. <laughs> and it's that leaving that's important. And he says, not all people leave it. Like you have people who are in their eighties who are still in the first half of life <laughs> in terms of, of that type of thinking. In fact, the, the last thing I'll say about ego, I suppose, you know, one, one of the questions and we'll get into suffering here in a bit, but one of the questions is, you know, why, why must we suffer to reach the second half of life? He says, it's all because of ego. He says, there's no other way the human ego will give up control and hand over control until it absolutely has to through the suffering. He says, why would we want to suffer? Uh, he says, you know, the 12 step programs have, you know, have all discovered this. Uh, they call it the first step, which is the admission of powerlessness. That's what suffering brings us to. But who of us would want to take on suffering voluntary, uh, voluntarily? It pretty much has to be forced on us through suffering. So there is such a thing as like ego work or soul work, as he calls it. And, and that's the work of letting go of the ego, even though it's important to build it. It is an, it is, it is an, an irony, I will admit. It almost kind of reminds me of stoicism. I know, I mean, I don't want to go back into the past episodes where we talked about stoicism a lot. But I remember that, I forget, maybe this was Seneca? I believe there's there's points in stoicism where it's like you should subject yourself to suffering if you can so you can you can realize that you know you can realize what's necessary and what's not and to do that I believe I forget who it is like I said but I I know somewhere in stoicism literature there's a I guess this I I I'm pretty sure it's Seneca where he would go out on the street and he would live in 
I guess, homelessness, even though he had this great wealth and, you know, he was a tutor and all this stuff and he had great wealth, but he would leave it and he would go live on the streets for, I don't know, a few days or something without any of his wealth and just live as a beggar. And, you know, he was experiencing suffering and all of that, I'm sure. But to do that, he also had to remove his ego from the situation, right? He had mm-hmm. to, to take that step back. So that's just what you were reminding me of a little bit. Because I guess in moments where you are suffering, you are letting go of your ego. You're letting go of this image, like this high horse image of yourself that you built over a long period of time. Yeah, it's interesting. Somewhere in the book, Roar says, I pray every day for one good humiliation. Like every day, one good humiliation so that I can keep myself in check. So I can keep the ego in check. Something that I'm just thinking about, maybe you can answer this for me, is like, what if I'm in this stage of my life, like I'm young? I'm like, this This is an example for me, right? Uh, question. But like, I'm in this stage of my life, first stage of life. And I recognize like ego is something that I want to depart from. Is it something, is, is Roar's view something like, yeah, you can, you can want to depart from it or, or maybe you should be wanting to depart from it, but it's always, it's going to be there until, until you suffer this, this tragedy. It's going to be kind of like, uh, it's washed away or to some extent or, uh, or, or burned away like, uh, like an open gas or something to that extent. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if he addresses that like specifically in his book. Sorry, well, I'm not the, asking you to be like a. Oh a no, 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 no! This is a good question because one of the things I wanted to talk about is like, well, okay, this is great and all, but how do we get to the second half of life? Right. Is suffering the only way? And so, so, so let, let's talk about this suffering for a second. What type of cataclysmic event could bring someone into their second half of life? So you are almost twenty. And so Rohr says there are some people who are already in this, this second half of life because of things that maybe, maybe a, a, a ch- as a child, your parents died. Right. Uh, or maybe you as a child have had uh, some disease or, or maybe you've had a cancer scare or maybe you're in just in a horrific accident uh, and we're in a coma and you managed to come out of it. But, but whatever, it's these types of things that can launch you into uh, the second half of life. I mean, it's kind of cliched in a way. It's that like, you know, these experiences make you see the world in a different way, but they do make you see the world and existence in a different way. But can you, can you get to the second, the second half of life thinking without experiencing some kind of tragedy? And so that's where he would, he would talk about soul work or ego work, right? So soul work is, is that type of stuff that you're, you're probably thinking of when you, you mentioned a meditation, correct? And letting go of the ego as much as possible. I think that's good. And I think that's progress towards. And I think that helps prepare a person to accept the tragedy that comes. You're better equipped to a, a, accept the tragedy that comes when it does come. Because when that tragedy comes, it's, it's not always good for everyone. It, sometimes it completely wrecks people and they don't recover from it. Right. Or it makes them... Even if they do recover from it, they're like bitter and cynical about the world. Whereas, you know, Roar says this should bring you into a, a more expansive understanding and more compassionate view of the world. But but soul work is where you at least do your best to attempt to 
move away from the negative aspects of ego while at the same time understanding that identity is important, right? It's, it's like trying to walk that fine line between the two of those things. Ego can certainly lead us down some, some very dark roads. You know, we become obsessed with who we are as a person and how we're viewed by other people and our reputation and things like that. But there is good ego work too that builds a healthy foundation. What you're saying makes sense. I, I guess what Roar's saying makes sense because I was thinking, you know, I've, I try as hard as I can to remove ego, remove the ego from my life. I try hard. I think about it a lot. I do meditation and all these things to, to try to limit it. But I still find myself going back uh, to kind of propping up my ego in, in a lot of ways, whether I guess it can be anything, but I still feel myself falling into these um, habits, I guess. So I can think that I've, I guess you have to have a big ego to think your ego is not there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of people just don't think about it, you know? Yeah. And so, so part of, part of a, a book like this, you know, is to help people at least come to the realization that it, it exists. You know, he says, you know, this book is not written for people who are just in the second half of their life already. It's certainly for anyone of any age because you do learn these lessons uh, like this that, that come along with it. Uh, another thing, you know, he talks about as far as ego is what he calls dualistic thinking. And he totally straight up says, I realize that I'm going to talk against dualistic thinking. And I'm literally talking about two halves of life, which is dualistic <laughs> thinking. But, uh, but, but dualistic thinking or um, what we might call either or thinking. He says, in your first half of life, you're a dualistic thinker. Everything is black and white, or at least you try to make it so. Good and bad. Man, woman. You think of all the dichotomies that, that go along with that. He says, we need good dualistic thinking for many aspects of our life, right? Like to be an engineer, you need to have good dualistic thinking. To drive a car, you need to have good <laughs> dualistic thinking, you know. Uh, to be a mechanic, to be a, a medical professional, all these things are dis decisions between this or that. And that's very important. But there are certain times, there are certain things in your life where like dualistic thinking hits a ceiling and it can go no further. You have to expand the categories to deal with what your or to handle with what you're dealing with in life. When you encounter those contradictions that exist in life, either or thinking or dualistic thinking doesn't do the trick. So he talks about transitioning to a both and, both and thinking, a non-dualistic type of approach to, uh, to, to things. Hey everyone, Mr. Parsons here. We hope you're enjoying the show so far and just wanted to take a brief moment to remind you about subscribing to the show on whatever platform you listen and giving us a positive review. It lets you know when new episodes drop and helps us grow the community around Open Door Philosophy. Also, we hope you'll join us for our next episode, which will be on June 1st, about Frederick Nietzsche. And we'll have, we're very excited about, our very first guest on the show, Nietzsche scholar Carson Knox. So tune in, and thanks for listening, guys. Now back to the show. I was wondering if you have any, any good examples of someone or something that kind of demonstrates that or exemplifies this transition. I don't have an exact person, but there is an example from, um, from World War II and, and the Japanese soldiers. So think about a soldier, like 
like who a soldier is and, and what it is they have to do. Soldiers have to be dualistic thinkers. Like you follow the command, period. Like you don't question things. You go out and do it and you do it for country and, and you do it for your commander in chief. And, and there's no question about any of that, right? And so in World War II, the Japanese soldiers were, of course, incredibly dedicated to the national cause of winning that war. And, and even more so to the point, remember, that many Japanese soldiers viewed their emperor as a god. So it was not only important for nation, but it was important for their emperor as well. And so once the war was over, you had this legion of men who were soldier mindset. They were first half of life mindset. And what the community of Japan needed was for them to let go of that and become someone important for their community. And Rohr calls this discharging your loyal soldier. I want to read from the book here for a second. He says here in the book, the Japanese communities created a communal ritual whereby a soldier was publicly thanked and praised effusely for his service to the people. After this was done, at great length, an elder would stand and announce with authority something to this effect. The war is now over. The community needs you to let go of what has served you and served us so well up to now. The community needs you to return as a man, a citizen, and something beyond a soldier. And he says, uh, you know, in, in, in his prison work that he did, haven't brought that up, but in his prison work that he did for 14 years, he talks with a lot of the prisoners about, about that, discharging your loyal soldier, loyal to whatever you're loyal to. It's important, like if you're a soldier, you've got to be loyal to that. You've got to be loyal to country and nation and, and orders and all of that. But in order to be productive to the community, you've got to let go of that and become something more expansive. And I have a good example that I'd like to tie into that, which is the, the parable of, of the prodigal son from the Bible. Uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, you know, you, you have this father who has two sons and one son requests his inheritance before his father is dead, but his father gives it to him. And so this son goes off and lives a wild and crazy life, blows all of his money, engages in every vice you can probably imagine, while you have the other son stays at home and is loyal to his father and serves his father's house and does all the things that he's supposed to do. And so when the younger son, the prodigal son, finally realizes that everything he's done has been folly and the only thing he can do is go back to his father and beg to just to be a servant in his kitchen or something like that. He comes back and his father is thrilled and throws a huge party and slaughters the best ox for the feast and, and gives him a ring and completely welcomes him back. And it's awesome. Yet we have the older son who stayed behind, the loyal son. And if you know the story, the loyal son is angry. He's angry that his father is treating this other son this way who has screwed up. The, pro uh, the older son says, I've been here the whole time. I've followed every rule. I have been the perfect son for you. How is it that like, you're not throwing this party for me? And that's kind of like first, first half of life thinking there. It's being so caught up in the loyalty, that either or, that dualistic thinking. It's being so caught up in that that you can't recognize the beauty and the richness of someone who has just been completely been been through it 
even if it's their own fault, and finding that redemption within themselves. I don't know. That's that, that's something that always kind of pops into my mind when I think of of this dualistic thinking and the and the discharging your loyal soldier. How does he, how does Roar think about changing this way of thinking? Is it something that comes through the years, or is it something that you know you kind of have to work on? I think it's acknowledgement. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely something you work on. It's that soul work, right? It's acknowledging that it's there, first of all, and then doing your best to try to try to move away from that. You know, in my own, my own experience in life, the, the easiest thing to pick on right now is politics. It's just become so two camps lately in politics in the United States, where e- either you're with us or you're not. Either you're with us or you're against us. And, you know, that's a dualistic frame of mind. You think of some of these really sensitive topics that come up almost on a weekly basis, it seems like, whether we're talking about gun control or transgender uh, teenagers, or I mean, you, you just pick your topic. And you're like, you're either with us or you're against us. And and that's dualistic thinking. And Roar says, you know, in order to be more expansive, uh, in order to arrive at a at a more generous conclusion, we can't think of each other in that way. We have to accept that there is a broad spectrum of all kinds of things to consider when you say, like, I'm either a Republican or a Democrat, you know, and you have to, like, sell yourself, uh, sell your soul to be one or the other. And life is just too nuanced. Life is too complex for most things to be in an either or category. I, You were telling me this before the show and you said it in the kind of overview of Roar, but... I remember you saying that he was a Franciscan monk. And if you think about Franciscans, I, I mean, I don't know if, if listeners are quite quite as familiar as you know Catholic listeners might be, but Franciscans are these monks who are devoted to poverty, kind of like most monks are, or, or most uh, priests, but they're devoted to total poverty. So most priests are paid like a monthly stipend, or but these monks literally have nothing at all. And some of the the really extreme monks, they just go live on the streets and uh, they give whatever they have uh, to people around them. And I'm so I'm sure this shaped Roar's thinking on this issue of what is it non non dualistic thinking, mm-hmm. right? Non dualistic thinking because I'm sure he's been out in the world and seeing a lot of suffering, and I'm sure that a lot of this suffering that he sees might be attributed to, you know, one might be attributed to this dualistic thinking. But secondly, when you're in the world and you're seeing a lot of people who are suffering, you can't think, you know, this person is right or wrong, or this person is good and bad. It's a lot more complicated than these issues. So I'm just thinking about how his how his own experience living in, in total poverty shaped his his view on this. And I think that's something that's that's probably that, you know, that's something for me that's really tough to understand because that's a very, very difficult thing to imagine for a lot of people living in, in poverty. So I'm sure that it, in some sense it is hard, but uh, it's easy to think it might be a little easier to, to recognize that this is true. This non-dualistic way of thinking is a better way of living than a dualistic way because um, of the experiences that he might have. And, you know, going back to, to like we were saying earlier with tragedy, Perhaps in his case, in Roar's case, the reason that he was able to attain this was because he's a Franciscan. But I, I guess that 
when you experience tragedy, it makes these, it makes a non-dualistic viewpoint easier to obtain. You know, you've experienced tragedy, however this may, might be, and then it might be easier to say, you know, this issue is much more complicated than I thought or than I previously could have imagined it to be. And then you can start seeing your, seeing that viewpoint in other people and other actions. In my own life, I don't think I've experienced what I consider a great tragedy yet. I know that there are some transitions that are coming in my life in the future. My parents are are old and uh, are older. <laughs> if you're listening, mom and dad, you're not old. <laughs> but they're in their 80s. And, uh, you know, there's an inevitability to things. And, and And so there's that. But I've never, you know, I've never lost anyone unexpectedly that the writing was we have lost people sooner than than we would have liked but but the writing was was on the wall a bit you know the 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 only thing that i think that that i went through that might be considered a tragedy again the semantics of the word but you know about 15 years ago i i i got divorced and that was a very long uh, very sad process and i i can say unequivocally that for about a period of, of a year and a half or so, uh, I was I was depressed. Like, like it was situational depression, and I won't take everyone there, but it, it got about as dark as you can think that it that it can be. And uh, and when I came out of that, I think you know as a result of that, it made me a more a less judgmental person when I encounter other people who might be having a hard time. It made me a more generous, more compassionate person because now instead of looking at depression as something that, you know, is just a, an objective thing that we can throw a textbook at and identify it in, in objective ways, having gone through it, uh, is something entirely different. And, and so I, I think that's what tragedy does for for a person you know when when roar talks about moving into a more richer more expansive more encompassing experience instead of either or thinking of people with depression like oh they're just that way or oh they're that way or that we can be more open and generous and it's not so much about whether or not they're really experiencing it like you think they're experiencing it because that doesn't be that that's not an issue when you're in the second half of life i don't think you just accept the person for who they are and what they're going through. And you don't have to apply categories to them. You just need to love them. I think we say this in every episode, but our, our goal has been to uh, provide listeners with a, a philosophy that's not, not abstract and not complicated, something that's not just about thought experiments, but something that you can apply to, to your own life, something that can help you live a better life. And I think that today's a, today's a great example of that. So I think that we can wrap it up and we can move over to the quote corner. All right, let's do it. All right, everyone, welcome to the quote corner, a segment of the show where we review a philosophy quote on a scale of one to five stars and we give it a rating. This week, it's my quote. And because I am reading up on Cicero this week, I thought it would be very applicable to give a Cicero quote. I was going to do something uh, that was pretty funny, maybe for another episode, but I figured we should do something more serious instead of uh, a roast. So 
<laughs> the quote for this week is about gratitude. It is, gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all the others. Uh, of course, that's from Marcus Tullius Cicero, not his uh, other son, Marcus. But yeah, Mr. Parsons, what do you think about this quote? Well, my initial reaction, of course, is like, well, who says? Um, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Gratitude's fantastic. But it seems as though Cicero is positing this as the ultimate virtue from which all right? other virtues come from. Like he says, uh, it is, is the parent of all others, which that means every other virtue comes, you know, courage comes from gratitude. Uh, sure. And uh, wisdom and temperance and all these come from gratitude. So I think it's a really great quote because I think really great quotes like make people think. And so this is certainly making me evaluate the virtue of gratitude. Uh, what's your take on it? I kind of thought about it in two ways, right? I, I thought about the same same thing that you were thinking about. I was like, oh, who says? Just a little bit of context. Romans thought a lot about virtues. Uh, to be a Roman, you had to exemplify virtues. I think virtus, which means virtues, was literally one of the virtues, kind of ironic. So for Cicero to make this claim that gratitude is at the top of all of these virtues, all of these Roman virtues, which literally made someone Roman is is astonishing. And I think it we should take it as something that's a, a big mic drop kind of statement. So when I was thinking about it first, I was like, if if we have gratitude, or if we don't have gratitude really, what is the point of of all the other virtues, right? So if if we don't have gratitude in our lives, really what what can we do? Like what's the reason that we're doing everything for? And I actually picked this quote before we we were on this topic of today about uh, the ego or about Rohr's philosophy on on the two parts of life. But I think that it goes with it even more even more well uh, because perhaps in the first part of life we we often at least at least I do this I often forget gratitude um, I forget to say thank you or or be thankful of the things that I have but it seems like Rohr would agree that in the second half of life. Your whole life is about gratitude. It's about being thankful of the things you have, recognizing them. So uh, just to wrap up what I'm trying to say, without gratitude, it seems like the other virtues are, are, kind, of, are kind of not there. Yeah, it also makes me think of, of definitions, right? So, so gratitude, you know, we think just like you said, being thankful for things. But also I think of, of the word graciousness which is not exactly the same word, but it's, and again, we sort of talked about it earlier, uh, you know, a, a generosity, right? A generosity of spirit towards others. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And, and, and you mentioned something about Roar that, that made me think about his, his view of, of prayer in the second half of life. You know, the, and I will like get off on a tangent about what prayer is, but, uh, and how we should do it. But, uh, but he says, you know, the first half of life prayer is about, I need this. I want that. Please help, help this person, please. You know, and all, all these sort right. of please and praise. Whereas the second half of life, you sort of, not that prayer isn't important, but he says, life becomes the prayer. The way that you live becomes the prayer. And so, you know, you don't need to act, ask for graciousness, uh, for gratitude, to have a spirit of gratitude. You embody gratitude. And by embodying that gratitude, uh, that graciousness, you become the prayer 
uh, got off on tangent there. Yeah. Anything else about the quote? Yeah. I just want to address the the last part because I, I wasn't happy with my explanation of my understanding of what Cicero means. It's the parent of all the other virtues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause that's, that's quite striking. You know, Cicero was notorious for being such a great writer. So he's not writing this out of, well, maybe he is. I don't think though that Cicero is writing this just out of fluff. I, I don't, I really don't. And, or nor is, I don't think he's making this to just sound cool. I think he really means it. So when I'm thinking, you know, gratitude is the parent of all the other virtues, like you said, it's it's kind of shocking. It's a big claim, but, it but is. when we when we think about something like the one of the most famous virtues that almost all of these ancient thinkers agreed upon was something like justice. Justice was one of these virtues, one of the four cardinal virtues. I, I am quoting uh, what I'm about to say somewhat, but justice. It doesn't seem like justice can really exist uh, without gratitude for for having the ability to be just. Or, or honor, for instance, can you be honor? Like, can you be really honorable, or have honor without being grateful for having the the ability to demonstrate that honor? Something to think about. But I think that being grateful for the things, for the virtues that you possess, and for the ability to gain those virtues, is something that a virtuous person must have before obtaining those virtues fully. Yeah, it makes me uh, think about something from the Tao Te Ching. Actually, uh, you know, it says it says the Tao is the greatest thing there is, of course, but we can never quite achieve the Tao as right. human beings. So the next best thing is goodness. Uh, like that's the right. highest thing, and everything underneath that is just a version of goodness, right? So you know, you say like kindness. Well, kindness is a form of goodness. Justice is a form of goodness. So uh, so that you know that sort of umbrella sort of flowchart idea. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's really great. All right. So what's, what's your ranking going to be this week, Mr. Parsons? Well, I like this quote. So I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a four solid four. All right. I think, I think I'm going to give it a 4.3. Ooh, just, <laughs> a just, to, higher. just to spice it up a little bit. I, I absolutely love Cicero. So I, I had to give him that 0.3 for the nice, beautiful piece of writing. It is a nice phrase, like 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 just structurally speaking, <laughs> the sentence, gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all others. That's just yeah. a nice turn of phrase. Right. You know, if I if I ever learn how to read Latin, I will turn to Cicero and and rejoice in his beautiful I've heard he you know, eh, never mind. That's not for this podcast. But yeah, uh, <laughs> Cicero and Latin is supposed to be beautiful. <laughs> okay. Well we love the we love the good, the true, and the beautiful, so <laughs> so it qualifies. All right, everybody, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we are gracious. Uh, we have gratitude for you spending your time with us. It really means a lot. We'd be very grateful if you would leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when new episodes drop. And pass it on to your friends so they might be more grateful towards you. <laughs> oh man, so much graciousness. Uh, we'd be very grateful to hear from you too. If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, you have a question you'd like for us to discuss, uh, or you've got a philosophy quote that you'd like for us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com.
You can find all of the philosophy on Twitter and Instagram and on our website at Open Door Philosophy, where you can find many things, including our gratitude uh, about the show, including our book list, the quotes we featured, and any other media like photos we've mentioned in the episodes. It's pretty funny. I'd check it out if I was you. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go out there and live that non-dualistic life. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems to be in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.